Support for Speaking Globally comes from Troy University, dedicated to teaching a new generation to lead change. Information on leadership opportunities available to students from day one is at troy.edu slash leadchange. From Troy Public Radio and Troy University in partnership with the Alabama World Affairs Council, this is Speaking Globally, and I'm Walter Gavan. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the first episode of Speaking Globally, a podcast where we take some time to explore different parts of our world and the forces affecting them. We'll look at the history, politics, and culture of different regions and countries around the globe and talk with people who can provide context and insight into some of the most important issues these people face. But first, since this is our very first podcast, let me share just a little bit of personal background. I retired from the Air Force as a Major General after 33 years of service flying F-15s, A-10s, and training aircraft, as well as serving around the world in a variety of positions working with international partners, including acting as the U.S. Air Liaison Officer to the Commanding General of the French Ground Forces in Desert Storm, and leading the international team that was rebuilding the Afghan Air Force. Along the way, I earned a master's degree in international relations from Troy University that has been a tremendous asset to me. I've also been a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau for Political Military Affairs and the Vice Commander of Air University at Maxwell Air Force Base. Currently, I'm the Senior Vice Chancellor for Advancement and Economic Development at Troy University, Alabama's International University. I'm also the president of the Alabama World Affairs Council. But the most important thing you as a listener of this podcast need to know about me is that I believe in the power of conversation and dialogue. In each episode, we are going to bring people together from all around the world to talk about some of the biggest global issues we contend with and advance the conversation about successful approaches to these challenges. Along the way, you'll also get a feel for the culture and context of different regions and hear some great stories. So let's get started. My guest today is Lieutenant General Retired John Bradley of the United States Air Force, a dear friend and colleague who has distinguished himself in war and peace as a courageous and compassionate leader. During his 41 years of service in the Air Force, General Bradley served as commander of the United States Air Force Reserve Command and flew fighter aircraft, a variety of fighter aircraft, including 337 combat missions in Vietnam. Though never stationed in a military capacity in Afghanistan, he made multiple trips to the country to visit reservists deployed to the region under his command. While visiting the country, both he and his wife, Jan, found their calling to help the war-torn, impoverished people of Afghanistan. As you may know, the recent news coming from Afghanistan has sometimes been hard to hear. 
At Afghanistan's international airport in Kabul, there is a mob scene. Hundreds of Afghans, possibly thousands, are crowding the tarmac trying to get out of the country. U.S. troops are attempting to keep... The number of people who have died in the chaos around Kabul airport over the past week has risen to at least 20. As the scramble to flee the Taliban continues, the United States has ordered commercial airlines... At least 20 people have died so far in the crush of the crowds, including one two-year-old child, according to the New York Times. Her mother, a former U.S. military interpreter, trying to get out. Overnight, a gunman opened fire on Afghan... The chaos and violence that has resulted from the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan has given way to the rise of the Taliban, which took power from the Afghan government in August. As you'll hear, the current state of the country greatly concerns General Bradley, in particular because of its impact on the women and girls of Afghanistan, who had been making great strides in gaining access to education and professional opportunities. In 2008, General Bradley and his wife Jan founded the Lamia Afghan Foundation after a fateful meeting with an Afghan girl who truly exemplified the spark and promise of equal opportunity in the country. As a quick side note, you'll also hear how I developed a similar interest in the progress and welfare of the Afghan people from the year I spent in Afghanistan from the fall of 2008 to the fall of 2009. Sir, it's a pleasure to have you with, uh, with us today to talk about Afghanistan, past, present, and future. Well, General Waldo Gavon, my very dear friend, uh, also a fabulous Air Force officer who served in Afghanistan, I saw you there, uh, had dinner with you. My wife and I had dinner with you after I was retired, and I'm honored that you would ask me to be on this podcast with you. Let's start as we approach Afghanistan today with the past. Just an overview, obviously, uh, a very brief overview. Afghanistan has long been considered a strategic place. Various empires have fought over it. The great game, notably, between Britain and Russia in the 19th century, which really ended uh, with uh, Afghan independence in 1919 after the Third Anglo-Afghan War. Of course, you and I remember well the Soviet uh, invasion at the end of the 1970s and then the Soviet occupation during the 80s. Ultimately, they retreated. Civil war ensued. Finally, the Taliban took over for the first time in 1996. But then, of course, as we all recall, 9-11 occurred. Afghanistan had been a sanctuary for uh, al-Qaeda and other groups uh, operating there. And so we ultimately, after 9-11, entered and, with help of the Northern Alliance, uh, uh, liberated the country from the Taliban. We'll have plenty of time to go into the, the longer history of what we did there. But ultimately, now uh, we've left after America's longest war. The Taliban are back in control. And I'd just be interested at this point, looking back uh, with your knowledge of Afghanistan's history, any particular observations uh, that you'd like to share? Yes, and I'm, I'm glad you used the term the great game because one of the best books of the many on Afghanistan that I've read over the last 15 years is named The Great Game, and it was written by a British historian, Peter Hopkirk, published first in 1990, but it gives the history of Afghanistan, particularly what you mentioned with 
uh, Great Britain and Russia and their forays into Afghanistan over the years. And it, it shows how resilient Afghans are. It shows how determined they are to control their own fate. And it, it's a great lesson for great powers to understand that the will to uh, control one's destiny lies most deeply in the people themselves of that country. Afghanistan has been a very hard place for anyone to control, even for Afghans to control, as we've seen. But we've seen the Taliban in power in the past, and now they are back in control of the government again. They are not very effective at running government agencies. I think they are struggling right now, and there's a humanitarian crisis going on there. But Afghanistan is such an interesting place. It's a frustrating place. It's a maddening place. But it's a fascinating country in many respects, a a fascinating culture. But that culture really needs to change so that women and girls have more rights, as they should. And the reason that my wife and I, Jan and I, decided to do our work in Afghanistan after I retired from the Air Force was basically about women's rights. It was about getting girls an education to improve the country because you don't have a successful country if you only educate half its people. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I was struck by as uh, I prepared and then was in Afghanistan from 2008 to 2009 helping rebuild the Afghan Air Force was the way there are so many ethnic groups in Afghanistan and the dynamic that occurs among those ethnic groups, the Pashtuns, who are the majority, and uh, I would note the Taliban, primarily a Pashtun group, the Tajiks, more around the capital of Kabul, traditionally have been educated and administrators. Masood, obviously, who died right before 9-11, was uh, one of the, the leading Tajiks. The Uzbeks uh, and the Turkmen in the north, the Hazara, the traditionally perhaps most oppressed minority centered in the, uh, the center Lake. of the country around Bamiyan, uh, but also other places. And then, uh, of course, Baluch uh, tribesmen down in the southeast part. Uh, all of these ethnic groups rubbing up against one another, competing for power. What has been your experience as you've watched that? Well, you've laid it out very well. What I have always thought about Afghanistan is the people of Afghanistan see themselves as part of a tribe. They're individual tribes. They don't see themselves as a national identity like I'm an Afghan. It's very different from what we're used to in America. Most of us would describe ourselves as Americans. I don't describe myself as a Tennessean or you, a person from Alabama. You don't describe yourself that way. We are Americans. The only just slightly jokingly, the only exception I would say is Texans. You know, they they call themselves Texans first, of course. We all understand that. But there's no national identity in Afghanistan. And that's one of the problems there. It is those tribes that you mentioned, every one of them, and particularly the oppressed Hazaras, who are probably the hardest working people I've ever seen in the world. They do all of the difficult labor in Afghanistan on projects. They are amazing people, but very oppressed. General Bradley, could you tell us a little bit about how you really got involved in Afghanistan? I know you were commander of the Air Force Reserve Command, and you obviously had men and women under your command over there. Uh, If you could just get into um, how you became involved with uh, Afghanistan and became more personal to you. I'd be glad to tell you. 
as you mentioned, as the commander of the Air Force Reserve, I had hundreds of airmen over the years, thousands even, over time, deployed to Afghanistan, also to Iraq, uh, doing all the important kinds of missions the Air Force is involved in in both of those uh, efforts. But specifically about Afghanistan, I had been there three or four times during my tenure as the commander, visiting airmen. I was not there for combat myself. I was just a somewhat senior officer visiting airmen, thanking them for volunteering, asking them what we could do to prepare them better and train them better and uh, equip them before we send them there and ask them to go again. So I would go around, I'd hold town hall meetings, meet with airmen in small groups, large groups across the country. And on one of the trips, I had seen an effort going on at Bagram Air Base, at the time the American Air Base north of Kabul. And there was a volunteer effort of soldiers and airmen who were based at Bagram, and there were thousands there. In their off-duty time, they would try to help local village families, particularly women and children. These women and children were allowed to come to the base as needed for medical care because there was obviously an American hospital there with uh, soldiers and airmen uh, working in the hospital. There was a South Korean Army hospital at Bagram, and there was an Egyptian Army hospital there, all of whom would see local villagers if they needed medical care. And when these village women and children would leave the base after their medical visits and getting medicine if needed, these soldiers and airmen who had volunteered uh, in their operation they called Operation Care, they would hand them a bag of clothing, school supplies, toys, things like that, and they would hand them out to the village children. I saw this effort going on. I participated in it once. I had some photographs of it. I showed my wife (laughs) And then she went to work. I'm not making any of this up, but she collected 40,000 pounds of clothing and school supplies and a few toys and things. And on a later trip to Afghanistan, I had a C-17 cargo plane, and we put that cargo on there. And Waldo, it was 14 military pallets of, of stuff. So I carried this over to Bagram on this trip in December 2007, and took a number of boxes to a local village with the help of the Air Force OSI, the security people at Bagram Air Base. They took me to a local village where they were handing out blankets and and winter coats, and this little girl, Lamia, turns out was her name, comes up to me, breaks through a line of boys because, as you know, culturally over there, boys have priority. So they're sitting on the ground in front, and the girls are in the back, she gets, walks through this line of boys and comes up to me and begs me for boots like the boots I'm wearing, my desert uh, camouflage boots that we wear with our uniforms. Begs me for boots. I didn't have any boots for her, but uh, I went home uh, after that trip, and I told Jan about her, and I had photographs of her. And she was nine years old. She was wearing a very tattered sweater. She was in sandals, and it's cold in December there, of course. Yes, it is. So we started going shopping for Lamia, and we bought four different sizes of shoes and boots and blankets and winter coats and some uh, writing materials, school supplies, kinds of things, and uh, four boxes of things. And then I mailed them to the 
OSI people, the security people at Bagram, to their APO address. And I wrote a letter, and I sent an email, and I sent a photograph of this girl, Lamia, and I said, please find this little girl if you would and give these boxes to her. Well, they went to the village, <laughs> and they found her and her uncle, who sometimes worked at Pogrom, actually, and a local policeman, and brought her to the base, and they fed them and gave her the boxes. And uh, I had written a letter to Lamia and said, I I loved meeting you, and I hope to see you again. I hope these things help. And then on my last trip to Afghanistan in May 2008, a few months before I retired, I went back to Bagram to visit Airmen again. So your last trip as a military person, but obviously you continue to go back to Afghanistan. That's right. I'm sorry, yes. My last trip as an Air Force officer in May 2008, and they arranged to bring Lamia to the base again and took her to the dining hall to a small room and uh, we had lunch with about 20 people in there the wing commander included (laughs) so when i retired a few months later my wife and i had a very brief conversation about what i was going to do and what we would do uh, when we moved to tennessee after retirement and we just together said why don't we just keep trying to help people in afghanistan and that's actually the story of how it started if it had not been for lamia I do not think we would have been in this work. That's how we got started. Well, she was certainly an inspiration to you to to find her way forward and uh, press her way forward in the line and to really figure in what became a life-changing decision for you. Absolutely. And just imagine, a nine-year-old girl really changed the course of my life after retirement from the Air Force. And as I've told you before, Waldo, I loved my 41 years in the Air Force, and I'm very proud of my service, and I hope I did things that were good and appropriate and helpful and uh, had a lot of fabulous airmen working with me and for me. But I really do believe that what I've done through the Lamy Afghan Foundation has been much more meaningful overall to humanity, so to speak, and I'm not trying to make too big a deal out of it, but I really believe that that's maybe more important work. I was just reading that the World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley said that 22.8 million people, which is more than half of Afghanistan's 39 million population, were facing acute food insecurity and, as in his words, marching to starvation. That's up from 14 million that were identified just two months ago. He said, let me quote him, children are going to die, people are going to starve, things are going to get a lot worse. And he points out the lack of funding and the collapse of the economy. This is an acute situation. And here we are, of course, the Taliban, We, you would hope that we could have some leverage in trying to get them to do some of the things. But I think you have to think okay, the first thing is our humanity, and we have to do something about this. We have to figure out a way to get help to those people. Exactly. Well, you've nailed it. The most important thing first is to keep people alive, and the most important part of that is feeding people. People have to have food every day, and there are families that do not have it. In fact, probably easily two-thirds of the effort that my wife and I have gone through through with humanitarian aid in Afghanistan over these years through the USAID Denton program shipping humanitarian aid to Afghanistan 
two-thirds easily of that has been food. We send prepackaged food, a package that you can boil in water and feed a family of six. And we have sent millions of meals like that to Afghanistan over the years. We've sent three and a half million pounds of humanitarian aid, easily two to two and a half million pounds of all of that aid was food. We've also sent blankets and winter clothing and medical equipment, medical supplies, school supplies, et cetera. But food is the most important. I want to go back to the the role of women and the plight of women right now in okay. Afghanistan. Yeah. It's something yeah. that's uh, it's long been a subject of importance to me and, and fascination as well. I can remember when I was there uh, rebuilding the Afghan Air Force, and there was a certain route I would take to the base we had at the airport, and it would take me by a school where often in the morning I would see these little girls all in uniform walking to school together. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that was an inspiration to me uh, every time. And I thought, yes, this is one of the reasons that we're here is to see this. And, of course, uh, in a country like Afghanistan, you can ill afford to ignore over half your population or to render half your population unproductive. Really, the in spite of some of the uh, rhetoric uh, that came out of the Taliban in the early days, we really haven't seen anything um, except the old policies of making women second-class citizens again, have we? Yeah, I could talk too long on this, I'm sure, because I feel the same way you do. The most inspirational thing to me, like you, is seeing these girls. I mean, some of the best photographs I ever made were just hundreds of girls in their Black uniforms, white scarves, sometimes with umbrellas, keep the sun off them, and their backpacks, and they're going to and from school. It is so important to educate girls for so many reasons. I mean, we've educated boys there a long time. Look where we are. So we were having an opening of a school that we built in the eastern part of Afghanistan out in a rural village with the help of an army captain, and we were doing a ribbon cutting, so to speak, by Skype. And so my wife and I are talking to this village elder through an interpreter and to the army captain, Mike Butler, about this school and how excited we are for girls to go to school. And I asked the old man, the village elder, I was probably older than he is, but he looked a lot older than I. I said, uh, so when you get to be a really old man, is your son going to take care of you when you need help? And he said, oh, no, my son won't do that. I said, will your daughter take care of you? Oh, yes, she will. I said, the then don't you want her to be as smart as she can be so she can help you better? He, he thought a second, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So I said, we need to give her an education so she can help you when you're an old man. And it's that simple, but on a grander scale, you know, these girls that go to school become grown women. They become wives and mothers, and they teach their sons how to treat women and girls with dignity and respect, which they are not typically taught uh, in the past. And they teach their girls the importance of getting education so they can help their families and get a job and and help the economy. We kind of started talking a little bit about the security situation. Let's transition back to that. And uh, first of all, just a a slight review. You know, the United States was there from obviously not long after 9-11 till just the the recent evacuation. Uh, I was there 2008, 2009 and had some trips before and after that as well. My hope was that we could build enough capability and transition to a training and advisory role, especially in terms of the Air Force, 
with capability to bring in American air power or special operations forces as necessary. You know, we've done all this over the 20 years at what is a relatively low casualty rate, 2,400 deaths compared to 58,000 in Vietnam and 2,400 over a longer period of time. But somehow we didn't build enough political capital to sustain this. I was, uh, I'll just tell you, personally disappointed in President Trump's determination to see us uh, withdraw from Afghanistan and the conclusion of the agreement. I didn't think we really got what we needed out of that. And I was disappointed when uh, the Biden administration, I thought, decided to execute what I, I uh, thought was a, a flawed agreement. I really think we, you know, we could have been better served by uh, keeping some kind of presence uh, in there. Very but true. Your thoughts on, on how yep. all that's unfolded? Yes, I, I agree with what you've said. What I would say, there's a lot of blame to go around and both administrations, even probably four administrations, different presidents' administrations have made some mistakes, of course. And so there's a lot of blame to go around, but I think the agreement with the Taliban was the wrong thing to do. I don't think we should have started talking to them without getting a commitment for the government of Afghanistan to participate in the talks. I don't think we should have just sat down strictly with the Taliban and not have the government of Afghanistan as a part of that. I think that was a mistake. I think the agreement we ended up signing without the government of Afghanistan was a flawed agreement, as you said. I think the Biden administration made a big mistake as well in the way they implemented and and we lived up to the agreement other than slipping the date that we would leave from May to August. I mean, really, how big a uh, change was that? It, yeah, three months. But, I mean, we should not have done it because the Taliban was not living up to their end of the bargain. They may not have been attacking American troops, but they were not doing what the agreement said they would do. So uh, I think we should have done it differently. I think the Biden administration could have renegotiated and said, look, we're not going to leave until you agree to these conditions. Uh, and then the evacuation was, I mean, the best word I can think of is, is a debacle. I've never seen anything like it. It's tragic. And so many people got out who shouldn't have gotten out, and so many people who should have gotten out did not get out, and many lives were lost, including American lives, as we know, with a suicide bombing. We've been helping a family whose mother and wife were killed in the suicide bombing, and two children got out, and the father and, and a brother didn't, and we're still trying to get them out. There are others we're trying to get out. My wife and daughter right now are downstairs in my house filling out forms to send to an organization that's trying to evacuate people. Our daughter has taken off from work two different times in the last three months to come home and help us fill out Excel spreadsheets to try to evacuate people. The security situation there is not good. Our workers, our volunteers have their lives at risk. Some people are threatened and very few people are getting out. There are several groups that are trying to work evacuations and we filled out forms for everyone we get told about to try to evacuate people who we think lives are at risk. So I'm very worried about the security situation there. I think we've made a lot of mistakes. And again, there's a lot of blame to go around. But General Bradley, it's been a pleasure to have you as the very first guest on Speaking Globally. And what, what a great guest you were. We really enjoyed hearing all of your insights into the situation in Afghanistan. 
And I know that you and your wife, Jan, will continue your valiant efforts. I've never seen anybody more passionate than you are about what you're doing in Afghanistan and the effect it can have. And I look forward to working with you, supporting you, and doing anything I can uh, to assist in those efforts. Thank you again for being with us. You're very welcome, Waldo. You're a dear friend. I love talking to you. I'm deeply honored that you've asked me to be on your podcast. So to be the first guest makes it even more special to me. Thank you for what you're doing and trying to educate people about very important issues like what goes on in Afghanistan. My guest today has been Lieutenant General Retired John Bradley, former commander of the United States Air Force Reserve Command and co-founder, along with his wife, Jan Bradley, of the Lamia Afghan Foundation, dedicated to helping disadvantaged children and families in Afghanistan. More information about the foundation can be found at lamia.org and in the show notes for this episode. While you're there, you can also find information about the Alabama World Affairs Council at alwac.org. Our podcast is recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio on the Troy University campus and is produced and edited by Kyle Gassett. I'm Walter Gavan, and I look forward to talking with you again soon on Speaking Globally. Support for Speaking Globally comes from Troy University, dedicated to teaching a new generation to lead change. Information on leadership opportunities available to students from day one is at troy.edu slash lead change.